The Christian life is one of pursuing faithfulness, of seeking to be faithful because of what God has done for us. A few years ago, I heard a lecture from the theologian D.A. Carson. He was talking about biblical narrative or the stories in the Bible. And he preached from this story in Genesis of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You may be familiar with the story, you may not. But Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and ended up in Egypt, and he rose through the ranks in this household of this influential man until he was over the, the household. But he had a problem there. The man's wife wanted to be with Joseph, and she continued to pursue him. And Joseph knew, as a man of God, that this was an inappropriate relationship, and so he continually rejected her until one day they were in the house alone, and she grabbed him by the coat and said, come to bed with me. And Joseph left his coat and ran. If you're familiar with the story, you know that she took the coat to her husband and, and accused Joseph of something that he had not done and said that he was the one seeking to be inappropriate. And what happened? Joseph ended up in jail. He ended up in jail where he would interpret dreams for a couple of men. And then it was told to Pharaoh that Joseph could interpret dreams after Pharaoh had a dream. And Joseph interpreted this dream for Pharaoh, and God used it to put Joseph in second in command of Egypt under the Pharaoh. And through that, and through this providential move of God, God used Joseph to save his people during a time of famine. And what was interesting is not just that God used Joseph to bring about his plans, but that we also see in Joseph an example of faithfulness and of purity. He might have rationally thought, well, you know what? I've been through a lot. My brother sold me into slavery. I've worked hard. Why shouldn't I be with this woman? Why shouldn't I just give in? And even when he got to jail, he could have said, well, this isn't fair. God, I honored you, and look at me. I'm now in prison. But he faithfully sought to honor God. We see his purity. Joseph wanted to honor God, and God used Joseph. Carson stated, not taking anything out of God's providence or God's sovereign plan, Carson stated, humanly speaking, we are here today because Joseph kept his zipper up. Joseph lost his position in a great house and went to jail for not giving in to this woman's advances. In jail, he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and from there, God used him to save Israel. Carson says there's lots of these stories in the Old Testament. We read over and over of unfaithfulness and faithfulness, those who honored God, those who did not honor God, until we flip the page one day and get to Matthew 1 and see that Christ came to earth. Today we are going to see from Ruth chapter 3 that God sovereignly uses the faithfulness of his children to bring about his plans. As we've been reading through Ruth, we see that Ruth is a short story in the Old Testament that confirms God is gracious, that he forgives those who turn from their rebellion to him. We see God's hesed, his steadfast loyalty, his kindness, and his compassion that lasts forever. We saw that Elimelech took his family out of the promised land to a pagan land. Elimelech turned his back on the covenant with God. He turned his back on the covenant community to go to a pagan land 
because of his own pride, because of his own arrogance. And because of this, he died. And then his sons, who did not go back to the promised land, they died as well, leaving Naomi and Ruth, the wife of one of these sons, destitute in Moab. And they decide to go back to the promised land, Ruth with her mother-in-law. At the end of chapter 1, we saw that they walked boldly despite their desperate circumstances. Last week, we saw these two women back in Bethlehem, and Ruth is going to go out into the fields to glean. During that time, it was kind of the welfare system, if you will. The, The farmers were to leave the corners of the field for the destitute. And also, if they dropped anything as they gleaned, they were not to go back and get it, but to leave it for those, the widows, the orphans, those who had fallen on hard times. And it just happened, according to God's providence, that Ruth would end up in the field of Boaz, a man who was kind to Ruth, a man that could redeem Ruth. We see God directing Ruth's footsteps to Boaz. And we read here in this chapter, in today's chapter, of a child of God being faithful in the little things. Now, I was telling the guys this morning, this was the hardest chapter I probably ever outlined for a Christian sermon. All of the Bible is Christian scripture. It all points to Christ. It is all profitable for us, and it is all God-breathed, but sometimes we have to work a little harder to understand it. Now, at a surface level, it's easy to understand what's happening in this story, but there's not a lot of theology in so far as we don't see God providentially directing a lot in this chapter, and it doesn't seemingly directly point to Christ. And so at one point, I had an outline that I had to crumple up and say, no, I don't like that, and started back with a blank page. But what we will see in today's passage is Ruth's faithful character within the covenant community. And would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Ruth chapter 3. And we will pick up where we left off last week. Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1, we read, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, her being Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, Observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that I say, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet, and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled, and turned over, and said, And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are 
a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. So what we read in this third chapter of Ruth is an account of Boaz, or of Ruth proposing to Boaz. Naomi, the mother-in-law, approaches Ruth and has this plan. She has hatched a plan to marry off Ruth to one of their redeemers. And she tells Ruth, get dressed up. Go down to the threshing floor where he's working during the harvest, at the end of the harvest. And there you will awaken Boaz and lie at his feet. Some scholars in the last year have been implied that something scandalous happened or was intended here. But friends, I want you to know that nothing could be further from the truth. For three reasons. One, when we find Ruth, she is lying at his feet and lay at his feet all night. Not in some provocative way beside him, but at his feet. Second, both Ruth and Boaz are said to be people of worthy character. You remember when we first meet Boaz, he's in the field. And, the, and Samuel says that Boaz is a worthy man. And in here in the chapter, we see that Ruth is a worthy woman. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And third, when Boaz asked Ruth what she wanted, she spoke of marriage and protection, not lust. In fact, one commentator said the only thing scandalous that happened here is that in that day, a woman proposed to a man. Something that was unheard of. And Boaz states to Ruth that Boaz, Ruth tells Boaz, you are one of my redeemers. And and Boaz says, yes, and I will redeem you. But there is another. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe it's because of my age. But I can't read that passage without thinking about Yoda from Star Wars saying, no, there is another. But what we find is a twist in the plot. 
We think, all right, here's the perfect match. We've got Boaz, a worthy man, and we've got Ruth, a worthy woman, and they're going to get married. And he says, but wait, there's someone closer. There is someone higher up on the pecking order. There's someone with greater eligibility than me that can redeem you, and we have to check with him first. Boaz says, though, if this man will not take you, I will. I will redeem you. And then rather than sending her out into the night, he says, just stay here tonight. Don't want you to get hurt. It's the middle of the night. You know, things could happen, so I'm not going to send you back to town. Just stay here. But then when you get up in the morning, leave before anyone sees you. And then he loads her up with 80 pounds of barley to take back to Naomi, which shows us two things at least. One, God is continuing to bless these two women through Boaz. And two, Ruth is a strong, healthy young girl (laughs) to carry 80 pounds of of barley back to town. But Boaz's treatment of Ruth shows God's grace to these two women and serves as a sign that he intends to fulfill his role as a kinsman redeemer. He's not just telling her what she wants so she'll leave. He gives her a gift and says, yes, I will redeem you. And when Ruth returns to Naomi and tells Ruth what had happened, Ruth tells, or Naomi tells Ruth, don't worry, you're not going to have to wait long because this man will not rest until he has an answer today. Naomi is seeking rest for Ruth, and Boaz will not rest until he has Ruth. And we see in this, in this story at least two things, and one of which is that Ruth was bold. Ruth was a bold woman. She sneaks into where an older rich man is sleeping in the middle of the night and removes his robe from his legs and then asks him to cover her with his robes. The uncovering of Boaz's feet has to do with the edges of his robe. Look with me at verse 9. As Ruth has wake, awoke, awoke him up in the middle of the night, he says, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, I don't know what copy of God's Word you're reading from. I'm reading from the ESV. But if it's like mine, you have a little footnote indicator there. I have a little one next to wings. And when you look down, if you, and just look down, you probably have it as well. It says, the word for wings can also mean the corners of a garment. So that word in Hebrew could also be the flowing edges of a skirt or a cloak that they would wear during those days. And so when she asked Boaz to spread your wings over your servant, Ruth is referring to Boaz's protective care. That's why she has removed his garment from his legs. This idea is best understood in light of Ezekiel 16, 8, where God, speaking to the nation of Israel, says, When I passed by you and saw you, and you were intended at the age of love, I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you. This is a declaration of the Lord God, and you became mine. In this passage in Ezekiel, God is speaking to his bride, his people. 
And by spreading his garment over her, God is covering her nakedness and protecting her. And that's exactly what Ruth is asking Boaz to do for her. We find Ruth, this destitute and exposed woman, boldly asking Boaz to fulfill his duty as a redeemer and to cover her, to protect her, to take her into his care. Last week we read that Boaz has expressed a wish that Yahweh, under whom garment or wings is the same word, Ruth had come by joining the covenant community, pray that he would continue to bless her and cover her. And now we find Ruth challenging Boaz to be that blessing, to redeem her and to cover her. And the second thing we see about Ruth's character is that it was noticed by all. Now, this part of the message is my favorite part. When I first started preaching, I asked my pastor at the time in Manhattan, Kansas, when he's doing sermon prep, do you ever like chase rabbits down a trail? And he said, yeah, that's a real thing. You have to watch out for that. Uh, I chased a rabbit here, and I love it, and I'm going to share it with you. Look with me at verse 11. We see, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Look at that word, townsmen. Now, several of you are probably reading from different translations, and you have maybe a different word for city. Listen to this. The ESV says townsmen. The NASB says all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. The CSB says all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. The NIV says, all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. And the CEV says, you are respected by everyone in the town. Now, every single one of these translations are faithful to the thought of the scripture. But none of these use the original Hebrew word. The word here used for town or gate or whatever your translation says, city, is sha'ar. And it means the gate. Literally, gate. Like I pulled my Hebrew Bible out and it had the little notes and stuff and I looked at it and it means the gate. Another way of saying this verse could be translated is, all the people of my gate know that you are a worthy woman. So why does that matter? You're saying, who cares? Well, let's look real quick at what commentator says happens at the gate in this day. Hubbard says, in ancient cities, the gate was a short passageway through a thick city wall, which provided the town an entrance and an exit. Okay. A series of small alcoves lined the passage, and the whole gate area served as both a bazaar and a courthouse. There the ancients gathered to buy and to sell and to settle legal matters. Hence, gate here represented the city as a whole. The whole town, not a specific legal body like a town council, but everyone in the town. And you're still saying, okay, why do I care? Turn with me over to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31.
So the writer of Proverbs, speaking on what is a worthy woman, what is an excellent wife, writes this. And we're going to pick up in verse 23 for time. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and teaches kindness. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and she does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children raise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. So here we see that the ideal woman in the Old Testament is praised in the gates. And here we find Ruth is praised in the gates. And one more interesting fact. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the order of books is different. In the Hebrew Old Testament, Ruth comes directly after Proverbs. And so if I were an Old Testament believer and I'm reading through my Old Testament canon, my Septuagint or whatever I have, I would read about this woman who is praised in the gates and I would turn the page and read about another woman who is praised in the gates, another woman of worthy character, a woman from whom King David would come and ultimately the greater David, Christ Jesus. The biblical writer states that Boaz is a worthy man. And all the people of town, all the people of the gate say that Ruth is a worthy woman. And here we see the common denominator between these two is not looks, it's not age, it's not ethnicity, but it is their noble and worthy God-fearing character. In this chapter of Ruth, we find God using a faithful woman to bring about his plans. Plans that would ultimately lead to the fullest form of faithfulness on the earth, Christ Jesus. We live in a strange times, my friends. We live in a day when the pursuit of holiness in the church of Jesus Christ is scoffed at. We live in a day where to pursue, to honor God with our lives, it's even seen as legalism, laughed at. Yeah, but. However, the scriptures are clear that we who have received a new life in Christ Jesus must pursue a holy lifestyle. You're thinking, ah, pastor, but the Bible says my works, my best works are but filthy rags. It is true. When it comes to saving yourself, you can never try hard enough or be good enough to save yourself. You need Christ. But it's just as true that all those who have been bought by the precious blood of Christ have a new heart that desires to serve God. J.I. Packer once wrote, Paul denounces the idea of salvation by dead works. 
But James rejects the idea of salvation by dead faith. We avoid both ditches. It's kind of like I thought this morning when I was in the shower, I was thinking about this text, and I remembered a story um, when I was in high school. My grandfather had given me an F-150. I was old enough to drive, and so I drove to school. My brother was one of these guys that, um, you know, he had five alarms set, and you still had to go drag him out of bed. And he would ride with me, and he would gel up his hair with all this gel, and he'd fall asleep in my truck and get the seat all messed up, and it drove me crazy. But we were driving to school one day, and he was asleep, and I was looking for a Leonard Skinner cassette tape in the back seat. And so I turned around to look for it, and I felt the truck bouncing. You can probably figure this where it's going. And I turned around, and there was a sign on the ditch right in front of me. So I did what all 16-year-old boys do, and I jerked the wheel and went over the road into the next ditch, jumped over someone's driveway, and crashed my truck into the ditch. My brother woke up and looked around and said, why'd you do that? (laughs) But I think most of us do that with our Christian walk. We go from one ditch to the other. Either it's all up to me and I've got to do everything and everything is up to me and I've got to do it and we forget that Christ is gracious and merciful and cares for us. Or we go to the other ditch and we say, well, you know what? Christ is okay with me doing that. Christ is okay with me getting drunk. Christ is okay with me looking at a little porn as long as I say I'm sorry afterwards. Christ is okay with me gossiping. Christ is okay with me wrecking his church. Friends, justification by works is a heresy of legalism, and you can never be good enough to save yourself. However, the idea that you are a genuine Christian without the presence of good works is equally damning. As one of the reformers said, you are justified by faith alone. But the faith that justifies is never alone. A true child of God will seek to serve God faithfully, though not perfectly. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a parable of a faithful servant. Jesus tells his followers to stay dressed for action, to keep your lamps burning. Be like men waiting for your master to come home from a feast, so that when he comes home, you can be ready to open the door for him. Jesus says, blessed are the servants who the master finds awake and doing their work because they will come and recline at table with the master. But if that servant is found to be beating his fellow servants or eating and drinking the master's food, getting drunk on the master's wine, that servant will be cut to pieces and put with the unfaithful. Christ told his followers that they would be known by their love for one another and that his followers keep his commands. Christ's disciples will be known for their faithfulness. As I've said before, we love to read the Great Commission and see that Christ says, I will be with you to the end of the age, but we forget that we are also to teach disciples to what? To obey Christ's commands. Carson said, humanly speaking, we are here today because Joseph kept his zipper up. Ruth was known as a worthy woman that God used to restore the line of Elimelech, and from his line would come King David and ultimately Jesus. We see all through the New Testament people commended for their faithfulness. Paul says that Tychicus is a faithful brother. So this morning I ask, 
Do you desire to be faithful? Do you have that desire in the heart that you claim God has given you to serve him? Or do you make excuses for your sin? During the period of Judges, which is when Ruth's story takes place, Ruth's story stands out as a bright example of faithfulness amid the darkness. During a time of great unfaithfulness, Ruth was boldly faithful. In our period of great unfaithfulness, are you an example of faithfulness to the one true and living God? Do you stand out against the wave of ungodliness around you? Are you counter-cultural by sticking to God's timeless instruction? Or do you go with the flow, what everyone else is doing? Are you the so-called churchman or woman who would like to adapt the Bible to the times? Blunt the edge of God's word a little bit so that it's easier to live among the pagan. Charles Spurgeon said, by God's grace, we will not adapt our Bible to the times, but by God's grace, we will adapt the times to the Bible before we're finished. Are you the one who questions God's word by saying, being faithful will not save you? I agree. You are saved by faith alone. Have, just merely having a Christian sexual ethic will not save you. Only Christ saves, but it is equally true, and equally we have to keep it balanced and avoid the other ditch that if you are truly born again, you will seek to honor God. You are saved by Christ alone. You are saved by faith alone. You are saved from the foundation of the world, but you are saved for good works the Father has set aside for you, Ephesians 2.10. You are set aside, you are sanctified out from the world. You are not to continue in your rebellion, but you are to faithfully serve him. Do you desire to serve him? Because we are all born dead in sin. So the presence of that active rebellion, a life that is defined by that rebellion, a life that is defined by rejecting God's word, that's what we were all born into. Because a holy God created this universe and it was good until man rebelled. And from Adam and Eve, we all inherit that sin nature, that nature of turning from God, that nature of rebelling against God. But in his great love and mercy, God sent forth his son. God the Father sent his only begotten son, eternally God with him, to walk the life that you could not walk and be crucified for your sin. After three days, he rose again and ascended to the Father. He drank the righteous cup of wrath that you and I deserve because of that rebellion, because of that unholy lifestyle, not so that we may continue to walk in it. Do you desire to live a godly life? If not, friend, I ask you, I beg with you, I plead with you today, turn from your sin, turn from seeking to serve yourself, 
Turn from your rebellion against God. Turn from making excuses to why you get to rebel against God and turn to Christ. Your good works are not needed to turn to him. Because he gives you everything you need, most importantly, that new heart. Turn to Christ. Repent. Believe the gospel. Father, we praise your name for your work, who you are. Father, we praise your name for your word that we may know how to live as Christians. God, I pray that you would save those hearing my voice who have never trusted in Christ. God, I pray that you would graciously and mercifully draw them to yourself. God, grant them no rest, grant them no sleep until they repent of their sins. And Father, I pray for those who have turned to Christ that they would pursue holiness, they would pursue righteousness, that they would be obedient to you as you have called us all to be. Father, expose our sin. Start with me. Grant us humility. All for your son's sake. In Christ's name, amen.